This year, uh, our stated goal for our whole church is that we would expect to grow. The idea is that it's our desire as a church that we would develop this ongoing, everyday, moment-by-moment expectation in ourselves that God is at work transforming us into the image of Jesus. Do you get that? Our job is to have the expectation. God alone can do the work to make us like Jesus, to take us from one degree of glory to another. But now, this work of expectation is not just a passive role. We don't just go through life without making choices and just sit around until God makes us like Jesus. We're actually called to lean into God. And sometimes, just as Joss was describing, God will use hardship. He will be in the midst of challenges and, and uh, struggles, and the hardship will be a, a, a context, a crucible for our transformation. We choose in the midst of that hardship to be faithful, to be obedient to God, and God uses that faithfulness and obedience to help transform us, that God's active using that to our own benefit. And even if we choose to not be faithful in that, God can use the consequences Like a loving mother, a loving father, God will use consequences. God will discipline us in the midst of us, in the midst of it, as part of our transforming process. So sometimes the hardship will be exterior, like a pandemic. Sometimes it'll be interior, like like an identity crisis or some sense of struggling with our own self worth, our self image. In addition to hardships, God can work in and through um, uh, trial and error. Sometimes our own involvement with our transformation is that, that we would show up in life and just we're trying things and seeing how it comes off. And sometimes we can be incredibly thick-skulled. And so we try over and over and over again only to experience error. It, 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 the common story for this is that we keep trying anxiety. You know what? I think worrying might actually work today. <laughs> And we worry all day long. We find out it got us nowhere. And unfortunately, the next day we get up and, hey, I'm going to try worrying again. And once again, it doesn't help. And finally, one day we might get to a point and we go, you know what? I'm going to try just engaging God in the Psalms and see what that does instead of worrying. See if that, if that can uh, make a difference. And God uses those times, that trial and error, trial and it's succeeding. And he uses those times to transform us. Sometimes God will use rest and reflection, that we can, we can choose to not be hurried, not, not be busy. We can choose to set aside time simply to be in God's presence, a choice that we make, trusting that God is at work, God is present. God will use that time in whatever God would want to do in our lives. I think the most common one that we think of in terms of what our role can be in our own transformation would be that we would study we would investigate. We, we would uh, uh, come up with questions and seek out answers. And sure enough, we can engage God's word and we can study. We can study God's creation and, and God reveals things. And in the midst of that, God can use our study as part of our his transforming work inside of us. In fact, as we start a new sermon series on James, that might be kind of the mentality a lot of us are going to bring to it, that, that we're going to study, and as we study, we're going to learn, and it's an education process, and God's going to use that to make us a little bit more like Jesus. But there's an additional uh, uh, way of us engaging uh, in an expectation that God's going to grow us, and that's through mentorship and 
uh, coaching or uh, discipleship, spiritual direction. And there's something special when someone else comes alongside us and helps to speak into the learning of growing, that learning of expecting, the, the, the awareness of God transforming us into the image of Christ. And why I think that's important for us to acknowledge today is because I think it's two wholly different experiences if we go to the book of James just as a source of words to be studied or as a message that comes to us through this person, James, that if we know something about him, that, that, that if there's a connection between who this James is as not just a provider of some words that then became, through the Holy Spirit, part of Scripture, but as one who cares deeply for our well-being. And we can learn not only from his words, but we ground those words in his own life journey and life experience. I think it just makes it so much more rich for us. You know, the book of James is just often such a popular book in our culture among Christians because it, it, it tends to be incredibly concise and it's extremely practical. You know, Paul tends to have these run-on sentences that are thick and rich and deep and, and, and you need to explore all kinds of different things. And James just kind of gets right at it. Hey, you know, be uh, um, uh, quick to listen, slow to speak. Okay, let's work on that. Uh, but I think we're going to find out that there's such richness in that because it's not just those words by themselves, but he's building it on a long and old story, a wonderful old story. In fact, um, the series is called Living Faith. And the uh, nice thing about when you use a participle that it can be used a couple different ways. So living can describe faith, a faith that's not dead. And James is going to have some words about dead faith. And, and so he wants us to have a faith that's alive, that's living. But it also can be understood as living a faith, that we would live out our faith. So not just describing the kind of faith, but what we do with our faith, that we would choose to live it out. And as James builds us upon this old story, we're going to discover that his style has at least two aspects of it that tie in with that old story. James comes to us with a, a, a wisdom background. In the Old Testament, uh, wisdom very much was an understanding of you take the knowledge that we have in God and you apply it appropriately to specific contexts. Oftentimes today, we like to focus on the knowledge and we think it's universally applied to every context in the same way. But there's this Hebrew understanding of wisdom that, that you take this knowledge of what God has revealed and then you need to understand, God, what is what, is what you're saying look like in this specific context. And the same knowledge may look completely different given two very different contexts. And so James is going to build on that wisdom background. James is also going to build on uh, the background of the prophets. The prophet Amos uh, states uh, uh, about the plumb line. And we've talked about the plumb line before. A plumb line is a, is a string with a weighted bob at the bottom and, and it, it shows you the vertical. And if you're going to build a building, you want to make sure that you have your plumb line establishing the, uh, the alignment of the stones or of the wood. And, 
And so prophets would call people back to the plumb line of God's covenant with them. That here is the central thing that God wants us to be and to live out. And let's align our lives with the plumb line of God. James is going to do just that. He's going to speak in the tradition of the prophets and call us to the plumb line of God's heart. All right, so for today, let's uh, make use of this time simply to introduce ourselves to James. Get to know this individual. And by the end, I believe we'll be able to acknowledge four defining characteristics of James. Characteristics not only for us then to be able to have an admiration for James, but maybe even then to say, should those also be a part of our own lives? Are those common expectations for all followers of Christ? Our text is simply the first verse of the book of James. So no need to stand. By the time you stood up, you'd have to sit right back down. But with your Bible open... Um, We'll also put it on the screen. Let's receive the word of God this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and to our time together. Amen? All right, so James, there's been a question over the centuries of who this James is. And there are uh, four possibilities that tend to come to the top of the list. Uh, Martin Luther, back in the 16th century, uh, he liked to emphasize that this was James, the son of Zebedee. And if you remember the story of the disciples, that, that there were two sons uh, of Zebedee, James and John, and so Martin Luther thought this was uh, one of those two sons. Calvin, who uh, uh, was also part of the Reformation in the 16th century, he thought it was James, son of Alphaeus, who was also one of the disciples, along with James, the son of Zebedee. Then there are some people who believe, well, you know, it's James the half-brother of Jesus, but probably someone took some of his writings and really it's someone else putting all this together. Some of the teachings of this, James, and somebody else was just kind of a a collector of those sayings and someone else put it together. But if we look historically, if we look at the sum total of research and, and writing on the text, and especially as those who were writing very close to the time that the, uh, that the actual book was written, uh, the consistent word is that it is attributed directly to James, the half-brother of Jesus. And I think as we go through the passages we're going to take a look at today, we're going to find continued evidence that that really is uh, the right choice for the author of the book. All right, so let's get to know this James. Now, one of the first things we're going to find out is that the story of James is a little harder to, to discover than maybe the story of Paul. Paul, all we have to do is turn to the, the book of Acts, and it's just laid out. There's just this whole story of Paul's life. And then Paul will reiterate parts of that story in all of his writings. Well, we don't have that luxury with James. So we have to go hunting just a little bit. Um, 
the first set of verses, are, are, it's, they're going to help us see the connection that Jesus had with his family while Jesus was alive in this world. So let's first take a look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. This is when Jesus returns to Nazareth, his hometown. And here's what we discover in this text. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? This is a different Judas than one of the uh, disciples. And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is um, not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So we get the picture already that Jesus had a family. He grew up in this family. He had these half-brothers. There were sisters. There, there, There was a family around him, but the family did not believe in him. There was a disconnect. They couldn't see what Jesus was revealing. Let's jump to Mark chapter 3, verse 21. This is a a part of the text where Jesus is choosing his disciples. And it comes down to verse 21, and he says, uh, and and they returned to one of the homes, and and, uh, there was a big crowd. And, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. All right, how many of us in our family have already identified somebody in our family who is out of their mind, right? You know, uh, maybe your family has identified you, like you're the one who's, out, out, uh, who's clearly out of their mind. Well, this is how the family, this is how James and the rest of them felt about Jesus. We need to take him back. We need to, we need to uh, bring him back home. We need to take him from where he was and stop him doing these things, and we need to, to bring him back to a safer place. He's out of his mind. Let's jump forward to John chapter 7, verse 5. Now, this is a time when uh, uh, Jesus' brothers were kind of challenging him. Jesus, uh, it's the time of the Feast of Booths. Why don't you go up to Jerusalem? Rather than doing all the things you're doing in secret, just kind of close by with people that are seeing you around here, why don't you go ahead and go to Jerusalem and do it in front of everybody? you almost get the feeling that this is not unlike the temptation that Jesus experienced from the evil one. You know, throw yourself down from the temple. Throw throw yourself down and, and, and see, Jesus, why don't you go and do all your works in front of everybody? It comes down to verse five and it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, Jesus, for his own part, it doesn't seem like he did much to nurture the relationship. We have this uh, teaching in, in Luke chapter 8, verses 19 and 21. Here's what it says there. It says, Then his mother and his brothers, Jesus' mo- mother and brothers, came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. So Jesus is, again, he's teaching, he's healing, he's doing his thing, and there's so many people around him, and his family can't get to him. 
But someone came and told Jesus, and he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. Now, if this were today, it might be that Jesus goes, you know what? Uh, take them to the green room. I'll see them after the show, right? You know, just here, do, do they have their backstage passes with them? Go ahead, bring them backstage. We'll be able to hang out after I'm done with what I'm doing here. That's not what he says. Here's, here's how he answers. But he answered them, my mother... And my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Oh, boom. Can you imagine being um, Jesus' brother or Jesus' mom in that moment? And, and he just, he just kind of said, these are my people. You know, if you want to be part of my family, you need to do what I say. So what we take from this description uh, in these passages is we begin to put together the life of James is that Jesus' family was very clear about what he was uh, doing. Not the meaning of it, but that what he was up to. They were not distanced. Not like they were back in Nazareth and they weren't aware of what Jesus um, uh, was known for and the kind of things he was doing. They just didn't understand it. And that's the second part, is that Jesus' family did not grasp who he was. And by the way, we know that. We know this, the challenge of family entanglements. You know, a, a girl grows up and she becomes a CEO or a teacher or, or, or some kind of a professional position. And, and, and yet when she goes back home, all of a sudden she becomes that girl again. Or, or a, a boy grows up and, and he becomes a, a welder, a mechanic, or a doctor or something. And, and, and although he's got all kinds of responsibility, he goes back home and all of a sudden he becomes the, the son again, the little boy again. And, and we know that, that we go home and there's all these entanglements. And, and so Jesus and his own family has these entanglements because uh, from the standpoint of the family, they, they, they can't see him for who he is. And then we come to Acts chapter 1. You see, by the time we get to Acts chapter 1, and the book of Acts is essentially the, the story of the early church. And so in Acts chapter 1, we, we know that we're past the crucifixion, we're past the resurrection. The resurrection took place, and Jesus already in Acts has already said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here's the description we then find in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 and 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew. So here's a list of some of the disciples given probably an order of importance, like the, the importance of their voice at the time. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together, now get this, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Something shifted. Here, Jesus has presented himself as the risen one and has called them, that, has told them that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them. And now the family is together with the other followers, with the disciples themselves, and they're praying in the upper room. 
You know, Paul helps us with this. He, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he gives us a list of all these reasons why, why we can trust in the resurrection. And he, and he gives some scriptural reasons and, and he gives a list of the people that the risen Lord presented himself to. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, if it was talking about James, one of the apostles, it would have said James and the other apostles. But it doesn't. It says, and then he appeared to James and all the apostles. There's an awakening that takes place. When we go back to our verse, chapter 1, verse 1, the first part of it, it says, James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we get this great picture of James he was a Jew. He was a Jew. And for him to say, listen, I'm a servant of God, that would have been spot on. That would have been a good thing for any Jewish person to say, a follower of Yahweh, the, the living God. I am a servant of God. But then he puts right next to it, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I'm a servant of God and a half-brother of Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm a servant of God and an apostle in this movement that my half-brother started. He says, I am a slave. I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So then when we continue in the life of the story of James, we get to a place in Acts chapter 15 where there's this big crisis in the early church. You see, um, uh, uh, Peter and, and Paul, uh, uh, others had gone out and they started sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with Gentiles. And, and Gentiles were coming to the faith. There was this uh, group of people that had gone out from Jerusalem. In fact, they were even uh, using James's name without asking his permission. And, and they were requiring that if Gentiles wanted to become Christians, they also had to become Jews. They had to be circumcised, that the, that the men had to be circumcised in order to really be a Christian. And so Peter had some words to speak up against that. And Paul had some words to speak up against that. They were seeing things take place, that the Holy Spirit was coming upon these, these Gentile Christians just like he was coming upon the, the Jewish Christians. And, and so to put anything else on them, to say that salvation requires Jesus and circumcision, because that's what it was. It wasn't just the adding of one little thing. It was, it was saying that, that a relationship with God, salvation itself, is dependent upon Jesus and circumcision. That that's how the covenant is established. And so they come to Jerusalem to have the apostles speak into this. And what we find out is that James, that James is a respected leader in Jerusalem. In fact, he becomes the moderator of the whole council, the whole experience. When we take a look at the passage, and this comes to us from uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 13 through 21, this is what we find. After they finished speaking, so after the reports had been made, after Peter had made his case, James replied, brothers, by the way, the term brothers, and we know in our culture today, it would be brothers and sisters. That, um, so when we hear this brothers, it's brothers and sisters, brothers. 
In fact, when we go through the book of James, we're going to find that James uses this term 15 times. In fact, oftentimes, my beloved brothers, James had a sense of community to him. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, and notice that, he uses Peter's Hebrew name, Simeon. He has such a deep sense of this old story of being Hebrew, being Jewish. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it was written. Do you see what he's doing? He's going, listen, we just heard from Peter. He testified to what he's seen. But listen, it so ties with what God has already said in Scripture. And then he captures from Amos a couple verses. He says, after this, I will return. This is, these are the words from the prophet Amos. After this, I will return, the Lord says. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. What James is doing is he's using a text that celebrates the covenant that God had with David. And there's this promise that one day there's going to be someone sitting on the throne forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's the promise that God had made to David and to God's people. And James is pulling this out. Listen, this Jesus, this is coming true in Jesus. He goes on and says, and uh, that the remnant of mankind, of humankind, may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Do you see what he did? He took the covenant given to David and he takes the promise from about the Gentiles being spoken hundreds of years before through Amos. James goes on to say, therefore, my judgment. Now, this is not a decree. That would have been a different word. My judgment. Here's my insight. Here's my wisdom. I'm going to speak in the midst of this. Here's my reflection. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. You are saved by grace alone. You are saved through Jesus Christ alone. Let's not trouble them. Let's not add some other burden to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Let's not trouble the Gentiles. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what was been as strangled and from blood. He goes on to say, for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Listen, that, that connection with the brothers matters so much to him. He said, yes, Gentiles are saved through Jesus Christ, but listen, we're a part of a people here and we're struggling to all get along and connect and we want the Gentiles to be respective of their Jewish brothers and sisters in the faith. There's a, a, a telling of this that, um, in fact, the chapter continues and they actually write a letter and the letter essentially parallels everything that James just said. So important was his word in that context. Paul uh, comments on this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. This is what, how Paul interprets the whole thing. He says, and when James and Cephas and John, so James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, Cephas, Peter, and John, the, the apostle, the disciple, 
who seemed to be pillars. So this is Paul, who was a persecutor of the church. Then he became an apostle because Jesus captured his heart. So here he's writing and commenting on this meeting in Jerusalem. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. We're going to have to hold on to that because that so helps us understand what James teaches in his book, that, that he keeps calling us back to that plumb line. Remember the poor. Remember the old story. God's always called us to remember those who are in poverty. Now, when we go back to verse 1, we actually find out that James writes to an audience. And the way that he words this tells us more about him. He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is such a heavily Jewish way of describing the audience. It also helps us to, to tell us probably when he wrote the book. So James, we find that uh, at chapter 8, verse 1 in the book of Acts, we find that there's a persecution that comes on the Christians. And so they're all sent out into, dis, in, in, into other towns. There was this persecution taking place. And James refers to them as the 12 tribes in the dispersion which is such a sense of, of a Jewish history to it. The other two dispersions were, was when Assyria came into the northern kingdom of Israel and exiled a bunch of people. And the other one was when the Babylonians came in and they took a bunch of people that put people out and about in the world. And James writes to these Christians and says, 12 tribes, those 12 tribes of Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes in the dispersions, greetings. All right, quickly then. The four things we can say about James that will uh, um, uh, enable us to see him as our mentor. That not just a random set of teachings, but as one who has history and story behind him. We can say this about him. He has Christ-honoring humility. He doesn't claim his half-brother uh, relationship. He says he's a slave, a servant, a doulos of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't play the apostle card or the half-brother card. How about us? How do we see ourselves? Is it, I'm Bob, uh, a pastor. I'm Bob, uh, and fill in the blank, or what, I'm, whatever you are. I'm your name. I'm an engineer. I'm this or I'm that. Is our first and foremost identity, I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. For James, he had Christ-honoring humility. He also uh, valued intimate community. You know, those statements about brother, that, that sense of let's be connected to the people around us. You know, in our culture right now, people are struggling with a vision for community. You know, this whole thing about wearing masks and some people are saying, you know, it's my right not to. I have a freedom not to. And all that. What if we had a, just from a population standpoint, what if we had this sense of strong community? How do I do something that impacts other people positively? And James had that. What we do matters to the people of God. The third thing we see is that there's this grace-based responsibility. Yes, we're saved by Jesus Christ. But then James stepped up. He didn't run away from the opportunity to serve. He stepped up and took on the responsibility of being the, the, the key person in Jerusalem. And so what responsibility do you have? What responsibility do I have? It's not just that we're saved for heaven. We don't just do the Jesus thing for what we get out of it. But we get everything out of it so that we can then serve and be responsible. 
The fourth thing we see in him is biblically aligned living. James quotes from Scripture. James bases his teaching on Scripture. You know, this year, the rest of this year, between now and Thanksgiving, we are going to be going through the book of James. And we can enter this time with this expectation that God is going to grow us. Whether it's through hardship or through study and teaching, through rest and re- Uh, reflection that God's going to use all of our choices along this way to help grow us into the image of Jesus. Would you be willing to accept James as one of your mentors? Not just a random set of teachings, but but James. In fact, they, they they came to call him James the Just because of the way he chose to live his life. So righteous was he in the eyes of the Lord through his obedience. Let's open ourselves up this season to let James, to let God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, to use the life of James, the teaching of James, the teaching of Scripture in our growth, in our transformation. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time to be your people, to be able to learn the story of our brother James, to, to, to know that this, this work you did in his life is such the work you want to do in our lives. And so wherever we're coming from, maybe we might think you're crazy or that, that, that how can you have any skills or talents that are mentioned in the Bible? But God, as you revealed yourself to James, would you reveal yourself to us? God, the qualities we see in his life, would you grow those qualities in our lives? Would you use the life of James and the teaching of James in the coming weeks for our transformation? And would you find in us the same kind of qualities taking place, taking root, that we might serve you well in this world. To you be all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.